0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3, and the title of today's lesson is God's Effectual Call. God's Effectual Call. And we are going to be reading the entire chapter, all 21 verses. And like I said, uh, just like the Old Testament saints did, except they did it in broad sunlight, If you will please stand with me, and we will hear God's word as it is read. 1 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, all 21 verses. Now the young boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh before Eli, and word from Yahweh was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. And it happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place, Now his eyesight had began to fade, and he could not see well. And the Lamb of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of Yahweh where the ark of God was. That Yahweh called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Go back. Lie down. So he went, And lie down. Then Yahweh called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call, my son, go back, lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, nor had the word of Yahweh yet been revealed to him. So Yahweh called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that Yahweh was calling the young boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be if he calls you that you shall say, Speak, Yahweh, for your slave is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Then Yahweh came. And stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your slave is listening. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will establish against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons have been bringing a curse on themselves, but he did not rebuke them. Now, therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning and then he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh. But Samuel was afraid to tell division to Eli Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And he said, what is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good in his eyes. Thus Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and let none of the words fall to the ground. So all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of Yahweh, and Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh, because Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh, thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Please be seated. Well, again, we alluded to that last week we studied Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving in response to God's personal deliverance in giving her a son, Samuel. And Alcana and Hannah, they fulfilled their vow and they dedicated Samuel to lifelong separation and service to God. Now, we didn't read this, but back in chapter 2, verse 19, it reads that Hannah would make Samuel a little robe and bring it to him from year to year. And I think it's sweet that Samuel, he didn't necessarily write down or, or record what his mother would tell him when she came every year to visit. But Samuel just remembered that each year, that Hannah, his mother, would bring a hand-woven robe for him to wear for that year. And I think it's, for some of you moms that are out there, you know, sometimes you might think, you know what, all these things that my kid that I do for my kids, they'll probably never remember and appreciate. But can you imagine, we know that most of 1 Samuel came from Samuel himself. And what he remembered, one of his childhood memories, was his mom knitting and bringing uh, an ephod for him, and then we see in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 21, that God visited Hannah again, and she actually conceived. So she had more children. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Well, we know that in God's story of redemption throughout the Old Testament. That there are periods of time when God will reveal himself and speak, and then there'd be periods of silence. Like, remember that God had judged the people at the Tower of Babel, and then there was a long period of silence before God appeared to Abraham. And remember when God appeared to Jacob in Genesis 46 to tell Jacob, don't be afraid. I want you to leave the promised land temporarily to go to Egypt. God was silent again for 400 years until he appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And then you remember that Joshua, under God's hand and leadership, led Israel to conquer the land of Canaan. And then afterwards, with this period of the judges, yet another period of silence for perhaps another 300 years. And so it's in this 300 year period of silence that we read 1 Samuel chapter 3. And what would seem like God still being distant, he breaks out of his silence here in this chapter. And we're going to divide this chapter into five sections. First, the scarcity of God's call. Then, the persistence of God's call. Third, the intimacy of God's call. Then, the demand of God's call. And finally, the marks of God's call. So if you still have your Bibles, back to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. And notice in verse 1, it says, And word from Yahweh was rare in those days, visions were infrequent. So during this time with Elkanah, Hannah, Eli, and little Samuel, the only word that the people of Israel had were the first five books of the Bible. They probably also had Joshua, maybe the book of Job, but that was it. That was their Bible. So God's word to them were either from the written word of these seven books or it would come from visions when God would speak to his prophets. And God would still intermittently speak to his prophets. If you look back at chapter uh, 2, verse 27, 1 Samuel two twenty-seven, it reads, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says Yahweh. So there are still prophets. But the visions, as we see here in verse 1, they were few, far between. In essence, God was primarily silent. And then the question is asked, well, why is God silent here? Why doesn't God speak to Israel anymore? And we understand that in general, during the time of the Old Testament, God generally withholds his word when he is displeased when he is angry, when he has righteous indignation against his people. We'll soon learn in 1 Samuel chapter 14, King Saul at this point was not under God's favor. Saul asked of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? But then it says, but God did not answer him on that day. Or we learned earlier this morning about Habakkuk. So there was Jeremiah and Jeremiah was lamenting over the state of the people of Israel. And Jeremiah writes in Lamentations chapter two, verse nine, the law is no more. Also, her prophets find no visions from Yahweh. But I think the most vivid illustration of God being silent when he's angry with people, with the people of Israel It's found in Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. Let me read what God says in Amos chapter 8. Behold, days are coming when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst of water, but rather for hearing the word of Yahweh. People will wander from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro seeking the word of Yahweh, but they will not find it. So what Amos is telling the people of Israel is that there's going to come a time where there's going to be no word. You're going to look for God's word, but you can't find it because God has withheld it from you and he's withholding it from you because of his righteous anger and indignation toward you. And that's what's happening here in 1 Samuel chapters 1, 2, and 3. So when God comes in this chapter to Samuel and calls him to be my next prophet, it is a sign of God's grace and favor. And notice that God's call in this case is not universal. It isn't to everyone, hey, if you will follow me, then I will train you up and serve you. God's call here is rare, and it is scarce, and it is only initiated by God. Let's look here in verse 2. We read here that Eli was lying down in his place while Samuel was lying down in the temple of Yahweh where the ark of God was. So picture the scene. Eli is not near the the tabernacle. He is probably in his own chambers, nearby, but away from the actual building and room where the Ark of the Covenant was. And we understand that according to Levitical law, in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 18, Moses wrote, No one who has a defect shall come near a blind man or a lame man or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb. In other words, if you were a blind man, you are not qualified. You are not cleansed in a way that you can serve in the temple as a Levitical priest. And so Eli now, he's old. Some think that he might be 90 years old at this time. And he's lost most of his eyesight. He cannot now do the things that he was called to do. And he's even somewhat limited in being in the presence of God in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant lies. So Eli is now farther away. And little Samuel, maybe just to work as a little security guard to make sure I don't know, animals don't come and uh, get into the temple. He is sleeping, lying down in the temple of God where the ark of God was. And look what it says here in verse three, uh, at the start of verse three, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And this lamp is described in Exodus chapter 27. In Exodus chapter 27 and in Leviticus chapter 24, there is the idea that there needs to be a lamp that's outside of the tabernacle that is to be lit at night and kept lit until morning. And so a part of this verse is saying the lamp of God had not been lit out. It's it's in the middle of the night. It's not morning yet, so the, the lamp of God is still on. But I think the lamp, of God also symbolizes the light and revelation of God that even though God had been mostly silent these last 300 years that God will not remain completely silent he is going to reveal himself divine revelation although rare had not been completely snuffed out so here we see in the context the scarcity of God's call But let's now jump into the second part here, the persistence of God's call. Look down at verse four. That Yahweh called Samuel. Yahweh called Samuel. And notice here, it implies it's an audible voice. Samuel hears the voice of God. But I think one thing that's striking about this, when Samuel hears God's voice, it sounds familiar to him. Did you notice that? I mean, imagine one of you kids, if you were to sleep, let's say here at church, and you are the only person here, and you heard God's voice. Have you ever heard God's voice before audibly? I would picture kids that if you heard God's voice for the first time, you would be astonished. Astounded, maybe maybe even fearful because you probably have never heard a voice like God's voice before. But when Samuel hears the voice of Yahweh, it's a familiar voice. He's not scared. He's not startled. In fact, it's so familiar and since This is orphan Samuel in some ways because he doesn't see his family. He's at a boarding school with all these strangers and probably the only person he spends a lot of time with is probably Eli. He thinks this familiar voice, I don't hear that many voices, but it sounds so familiar, it must be Eli. And so he goes to Eli, wakes up Eli and says, here I am. And each time you see Samuel here saying, here I am, it is the same phrase, behold, I am, as when Isaiah in the throne room in, in, in Isaiah 6, when, when, when God says, who will go for us? Who will come for us? And, and what did Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. So Samuel says, here I, here I am. And of course, Eli says, why are you up? Go back, it's not me. And notice the persistence of God. Verse 6, Yahweh called yet again Samuel. And of course, Samuel gets up, thinks it's Eli, goes over to Eli. Eli says, no, no, it's not me. Go back to sleep. Now, you can appreciate Eli's patience here. For some of you parents that have young children, If your child were to wake you up in the middle of the night, maybe the first time you would have some tolerance, right? But the second time, when you just told your child, don't come back in again, I don't need you, and they come back. But this is what Samuel does. But then look at the persistence here the third time in verse 8. So Yahweh called Samuel again, a third time and I think it's important here because you see in verse uh, chapter 3 it's not only the fact that God is breaking out of his silence and calling Samuel but he has taken the torch away from Eli and his sons and the priestly house of Eli because notice this it's clear that the voice of God Uh, is audible. And even though Eli may be some distance away, it couldn't be too far of a distance. So the voice of God is audible, and yet Eli doesn't hear it. Eli hears nothing. The only person that is able to discern God's voice is Samuel. But even though Eli can't hear God's voice, He puts two and two together he knows yahweh and 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 he realizes this must be god appearing to this young boy and so he gives instructions to samuel to to go back and the next time do as i say but i want us to think about this persistence of god's calling notice the kindness and the patience and the gentleness of God as he calls Samuel. And I can only, again, allude back to some of our experience as parents, especially when you are a parent with a young child, right? If you want the attention of your child, you'll usually call out their name, right? Like Nathan or Evelyn or Sean, come here. And if they don't come, then you might raise your voice a little bit louder, right? Nathan, did you not hear me? Please come here. Well, if by the third or the fourth time, some of us as parents will probably have lost our patience, because we know that individual, our child, has heard us, but they are not responding in the way that I would want them to respond. That's the same way God is with us, but when we see this persistence, in this case with little Samuel, it is a sign and it's indication of his overwhelming patience towards us. And I think you could appreciate even more when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the washing of the disciples' feet? It was the Last Supper, John chapter 13, And John writes, then Jesus poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And then Jesus came to Peter and he said to him, this is Peter saying to Jesus, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to Peter, get this, what I am doing now, you do not realize but you will understand afterwards. Peter should have understood what what was signified when Jesus was to wash the disciples' feet. And so Peter, in his audacity to stand up and say, hey, you cannot wash my feet, he obviously didn't understand. But what Jesus was saying gently is, you don't realize it now, Peter, but you will realize it afterwards. And understand Peter did, because in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, And all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the mercy. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And so what Peter is writing down is, I remembered the Lord taking off his outer robe to wash my feet in this supreme example of humility. And now I can share with all of you, understand that when you humble yourselves towards one another, it is at the proper time that God will raise you up. So the implications is this. That in his persistence, God shows unfathomable patience and persistence when, when he calls us. And whether it's his effectual call of salvation or our progressive growth in our sanctification, God always remains gentle, faithful. You don't have to get it on the first try. When you don't understand, just like we learned this morning from our morning sermon, We don't don't need to come to that perfect faith all at once and that response. God's patient. He's, He's kind, he's gentle, and he understands that it's in time that we will learn in response. Well, let's look at the third part of God's call, the intimacy of God's call, and we see this important principle in verse 10. So if you still have your Bible, verse 10 It reads, then Yahweh came and stood, as called as in other times, Samuel, Samuel. There's a couple of interesting details that I want us to take note of. First, in verse 10, it said, then Yahweh came and stood. Stood. Standing. The verb stood or to stand is used of Yahweh when he appears in what theologians called a theophany. So we understand that Jesus came in human flesh when he was born, right? The Christmas story, the Advent. But in the Old Testament times, God is spirit. He doesn't appear typically. In physical form but he does appear in physical form at times and when he does we call that a theophany so when the Old Testament says Yahweh stood Yahweh stands this is not just an angel this is God physically appearing standing in front of his creature in Genesis chapter 18 it says, Then Yahweh appeared to Abraham while he was seated at the the tent door, and he lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld three men were standing. So it was God in physical form with two angels that appeared, and Moses writes that Abraham saw three men standing. In Genesis chapter 28, Regarding Jacob, you remember Jacob had a dream and he dreamt of a ladder. Genesis chapter 28 reads, then Jacob had a dream and behold, a ladder stood. And we learn in the gospel of John that the ladder is our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, a ladder stood. God in physical form on the earth with its top touching heaven. And behold, angels were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. So Jacob has this dream that the ladder, which is our Lord Jesus Christ, was standing, And at the top of the ladder is Yahweh God standing. And so in chapter 3, verse 10, when God had been silent for over 300 years, in front of little Samuel, Yahweh stood. But he didn't just stand. He spoke. And he spoke these two words. Samuel Samuel. God here repeats the name twice. And up until this point in the Old Testament, God had only done it three other times. And when God or any Israelite repeats a name twice, it does draw attention, but it expresses not just emphasis or elevation intimacy intimacy in Genesis chapter 22 when God called Abraham to bring his one son Isaac to sacrifice uh, Isaac at the altar on Mount Moriah and Abraham obeyed and lifted up his hand Genesis 22 says Abraham stretched out his hand took a knife to slay his son, but the angel of Yahweh called to him from above and said, Abraham, Abraham. And his response was, here I am. Again, in Genesis chapter 46, to clearly instruct Jacob to leave Canaan, God spoke to Jacob, or in Israel, in the vision of the night, and he said in Genesis 46, Jacob, Jacob, but perhaps most prominent in Exodus chapter 3. After a long period of silence for 400 years, in the middle of the desert, where there was nothing except a bush that miraculously started to burn, but was not consumed. And it says in Exodus 3, Yahweh saw that he turned aside and looked and God called to him in the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ actually used this repetitive reference at least twice. Once was to Martha. Remember? Martha was busy with everything, and and, and Mary was the one that was sitting at Jesus' feet. And, And the Lord answered, I don't think he screamed out her voice. It was one of gentleness, but of intimacy. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But the more dramatic time Jesus called out a man's name twice was in Acts chapter 9. And on the road to Damascus, as Saul was traveling, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shined around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And We don't know the tone of the voice, but I don't think it was a shout. I think it was a voice of gentleness, pleading, intimate. There were other men that were there, but this voice was to Saul alone. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So the implication is this, God's call to us is personal and it is intimate. Now, there are some of you kids that are sitting here in this room right now that I don't think it was your choice to be here in this room. It was probably your mom and dad that said, you know what, uh, we're doing this and that. Why don't you stay here for the next hour and, and you listen to the Bible being read and being taught. But, when it comes to the Christian faith and God's call, it is not global. It is not universal, universal. It is personal, individualized, and it is intimate. Like God's call to Samuel, God's call to us is, is personal. And your response to God will be a personal response. You're you're not a Christian because your mom and dad are a Christian, or even because your friends want to be Christians. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to be a God worshiper, that is a calling that you must respond to by your own individual self. You know, Paul describes his calling to the Galatians. He, he writes in Galatians chapter one, but when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. You know, God's call isn't just a one-time thing. God's calling to you is intimate and it started even before you were born. So the scarcity of God's call, it's rare. The persistence of God's call God is patient, gentle. The intimacy of God's call, it's to you as an individual, one-on-one, personal. Well, fourthly, let's look at the demand of God's call, the demand of God's call. And we see it in verses 11 to 18. I'll just jump to verse 12. In that day, I will establish against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his son, or excuse me, his house. And so what this is referring to is back to the previous passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where God basically revealed to another prophet, another man of God, that he is going to judge Eli's household because of his sons. And what were his sons doing? If you read in verse 13, I have told Eli that I am about to judge his house forever. For the iniquity which he knew because his sons have been bringing a curse on themselves, but he did not rebuke them. Some of your English translations say that Eli's sons were blaspheming God or they were cursing God. How bad were Eli's sons? If you turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Verse 12, it says, now the sons of Eli were vile men. They did not know Yahweh. And that term, vile men, it literally means sons of Belial. Belial is like another reference to Satan. First Samuel is saying that Eli's sons were like the sons of Satan. They are vile people. They are incited to idolatry, insurrection, sexually immoral. They are liars. This phrase was given to Eli's sons. And notice in the second half of verse 12 of chapter 2, it says they did not know Yahweh. There was no personal relationship they had with God. So they they were the priests of the highest level. And yet what God is saying in his word is that he has no personal relationship with Eli's sons. If you go back to chapter two, verse uh, 22, what else does the Bible say about Eli's sons? All that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So there would be some women that would be in front of the entrance of the tent of meeting. Like in our church, sometimes when you come in, right, there may be some greeters with name tags that smile, might shake your hand and greet you. Well, there would be some women that would be at the outer part of the tent of meeting, and they would have certain duties. And what the Bible is saying is that Eli's sons would basically lie with these women, So kids, you understand usually in your home, if mom and dad are at home with you, that usually mom and dad might be in the same room, share the same bed. But mom and dad aren't going to share a bed with another person, just mom and dad, right? Well, Eli's sons would share the same bed with strange women just by working in front of the tent of meeting. How defiling is that? And get this for those of you who remember in chapter one. Remember when Hannah was praying silently, her lips were moving and nothing came out and Eli accused Hannah of being drunk. And we learned that drunkenness near the tabernacle was subject to the death penalty. And do you know what Hannah said? Remember what Hannah said to Eli? Hannah said to Eli, Eli, says, don't misunderstand. I am not a vile maidservant. I'm not a daughter of Belial. So Eli would question and make an accusation of Hannah, who he had never met before, and yet his sons would do all these wicked things, and he tolerated that to continue in the tabernacle of God. But here's the demand. The demand of God's call to Samuel is this. Whatever I reveal to you, you are to be faithful to proclaim my word. God's demand for his prophets was not just simply to hear God's word. God's prophet was to proclaim God's word to people, especially people who didn't want to hear it. It's not easy For us to herald God's word amidst opposition. And I think you all and I understand this. Like think of us today. How difficult is it now for you and I to proclaim God's truth to our society? That we say that God created us male and female. That God designed marriage to be with one man and one woman. And that God has created us in his likeness and in his image. And because of that, all human life, including that inside a woman's womb, is sacred and must be protected. So Samuel was commanded by God. This vision is not just for you to wake up and say, wow, that's great. But it's your responsibility, Samuel, for the first time and for the rest of your life that you are to herald my word. And that's exactly what Samuel did. Look at verse 18. Samuel told Eli everything and hid nothing from him. Samuel accepted God's demand. And I think, brothers and sisters, sometimes we forget that when God calls us, The calling is not just an invitation, but it includes a demand, a summon for obedience. Jesus told the crowds, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. And many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Do many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And when Jesus gave the stern warning, he didn't say some of you. He said many of you. Perhaps to this crowd, even most of you. So just because you're here in this fellowship hall right now means nothing if it doesn't include an obedience to the demand of God's call. Salvation doesn't cost us anything. It costs us nothing. It costs Christ everything. But to follow Christ still demands us everything. Complete allegiance. Supreme devotion. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ but it's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. So we see the scarcity, the persistence, the intimacy, the demand of God's call. Let's look at this final section, the marks of God's call. Look at verse 19, chapter three. Thus Samuel grew and Yahweh was with him there are at least three marks that I see of God's calling here in these three verses. The first mark is the presence of God, the presence of God, that Yahweh was with him. And when it says when Samuel grew, it's mainly talking about his physical growth. Basically, Samuel grew from toddler, three-year-old, all the way to adulthood. And God was with him all the way. And you might take that for granted, but God's presence, especially here in the Old Testament, was not to be uh, assumed. And in fact, God's presence has everything to do with victory and success and everything to do with rejection and failure. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Then one of the young men answered and said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse. He's talking about King David who is a skilled musician, mighty man of valor, warrior, understanding in speech, a man of fine form. And he says, and Yahweh was with him. King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 18, it reads, and Saul was afraid of David, for Yahweh was with David, but had turned away from Saul. King Saul, as we will see, the first mighty king of Israel who had absolute power and authority over his nation was afraid of David because he knew very well that God was not with him, turned away from him, and God was with David. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 28, it again says, and Saul saw and knew that Yahweh was was with David. Well, for us today, it's a little different because God in the Old Testament might come to a person in his spirit and then leave. But after Jesus, when when you're a Christian, God's always with you. And God's not only next to you, but scripture says that God has indwelt in you. Isaiah even prophesied this. Isaiah 57, God says, I dwell on high and holy place and also with the crushed and lowly of spirit. So what Isaiah is saying is that, yeah, God is located in the heavens, but he's going to come and be with those who are poor in spirit. Ezekiel says that God will say, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. John promised God's spirit, right? John tells his disciples, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And Paul in Romans says that hope doesn't disappoint. You will always have hope because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, God's spirit, which was given to us. So God's presence is always with us. He's not just near. God's spirit is in you if you are a Christian. So the first mark is God's presence, the presence of God. The second is the word of God. Look again in verse 19. It says that Samuel grew, Yahweh was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. So this imagery that Samuel's words, none of it falls to the ground, it's just another way of saying that all the predictions... Everything that Samuel says that was the word of God, it came true. Nothing was false. Nothing was missing. And this is the mark of a true prophet. First Samuel chapter 9, uh, it says that, Behold now, there is a man of God in the city, and the man is held in honor, and all that he says surely comes true. That's the big difference between a true prophet and a false prophet. Deuteronomy says that when a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, in the name of God, if the thing doesn't come about or come true, that is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously and you shall not be afraid of him. So the mark of the true prophet is that the word of God has come to him and when it's uttered out and heralded, to the nation, that every word comes true. And I think in application to us, I think it is at least a couple of fold. Like think with me. Yes, God doesn't speak to you with an audible voice. But each and every one of you in this room, even kids, you have God's word with you every moment of every day if you have a Bible in your home. And when you open up and read God's word, even what we're reading today, this is God speaking to us. This is God's perfect word. And a mark of our call is, do we know that God's word is precious, altogether true? And are we going to read it? Are we going to try to understand it? But not even to understand it, but are we able to articulate and and herald this to others, and to the watching world. It's one thing to just learn as much as you can and just have big heads. But, but what are we to do with this precious truth that God has given to us? We are to share God's word with others. So there's the presence of God. There's the word of God. And thirdly, a, mar- a third mark of God's call is the affirmation of God. God's affirmation. Look at verse 20. So all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of Yahweh. Now, that phrase Dan to Beersheba, Dan is the northernmost city of, of Israel during this time. And Beersheba was the southernmost. So sometimes here in the United States, we can say, you know, from New York to L.A., And what we're meaning is not just exactly that line between New York and LA. Because New York is in the East Coast. LA is on the West Coast. When someone says from New York to LA, it means all of the United States. So when when the author says all Israel, Dan to Beersheba, it's everywhere, all Israel. And you need to understand that they didn't have phones back then, they didn't have cars. People didn't travel 20 or 30 miles more than maybe once or twice a year. But all of Israel, they they heard, they saw, perhaps even experienced, the man of of Samuel. And they confirmed, it was confirmed to them that Samuel was a prophet of God. We will soon see that Samuel will hold the office of judge, prophet, and priest. Three offices. There will not be another man that will hold three key offices from Samuel until the coming Messiah. Remember King, king Saul? Well, we'll soon learn about King Saul. He, he, he was king. He did receive some revelation from God when God was with him, but he wanted to be priest. And God said, "No, you cannot be priest. Only the coming Messiah will hold the office of prophet, priest and king." So what were these three marks? The presence of God, the word of God, the affirmation of God as confirmed by other witnesses? And just read the first line of chapter four, verse one. This is the consequence. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Isn't that precious? At the, at the start of the chapter, word from Yahweh was rare, visions were infrequent. And through Samuel, the words of Samuel, which were the words of God, came to all israel it's a glimmer of hope god's not forever going to be angry with his people and part of him showing grace and favor is to share and reveal his word and he's going to do it through samuel well as the final word of application if there are any of you in this room who have not yet put your trust in jesus then god's issuing a call to you and the call is this repent turn away from your sins and trust in christ and acknowledge him as your lord and savior and for those of you who have come to saving faith understand that god's not done yet in his calling of you Right? That, that when he calls you, Romans 8.29 says, he will justify you and to those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. So think with me this way. Marvel that God has given you his call, which is a scarce call. Thank God for his patience in his persevering call. Savor God who has given you a personal and intimate call. Obey God and surrender self to him with a call that demands. And cherish God for his indwelling presence, his holy word, and his everlasting affirmation. Let's pray.